Take care, brothers, lest perhaps there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort, urge one another each day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you would become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our initial confidence firm until the end. Let's pray together. Father, we we are so thankful that you have put warning passages in the Bible because we know that it is the very warning itself that you use as a means to preserve us. And so, Father, I pray that you would come and that you would use this warning passage to help us. We need help, Lord. We all need help, every pastor and every member of this church. We need your grace and your mercy. So, Father, I want to, I want to be helped by you now to preach this word powerfully, effectively. So, Lord, I, want to, I don't want to be in the way, and I ask that Jesus Christ would be in the center and that the Holy Spirit would now anoint my lips and bless this sermon for your sake and for our good for our eternal good and security, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily, I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. These words were written in 1758 by Robert Robinson. Three years after his conversion at the age of 23, uh, in a drunken stupor at the age of 17, Robinson and his friends attended an evangelistic meeting of none other than George Whitfield. And George Whitfield was preaching a sermon on the wrath of God. And it was his testimony, that is, Robert Robinson's testimony, that Whitfield's message tormented his conscience for three years. Wouldn't it have been amazing to listen to Whitfield? You hear, you hear these kind of stories, it's amazing. Three years until he found rest in Jesus Christ. Soon after that, Robinson became a pastor in the Calvinist slash Methodist tradition. But the reality of which Robinson spoke of in the third stanza of Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing tragically came true when he fell into a lifestyle of sin 
and even turned to Unitarianism. If you don't know what that is, you can ask later. It was during this time that Robinson, he entered a stagecoach to go somewhere, and a lady was joyously humming one of her favorite hymns. And turning over to Robert, she asked him if he knew the hymn that had ministered to her so much. To which Robinson replied, Madam, I'm the poor, unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago. And I would give a thousand worlds to enjoy the feelings that I had then. Friends, how do you go from writing such powerful, soul-stirring words as, Come thou fount of every blessing, only later to get to a place where you would give a thousand worlds to know and experience what you had written? And that's the burden of my message this evening. I want to explain how that happens from Hebrews chapter 3 and how to avoid it. You see, because in God's kindness, actually, I wanted to preach this message a couple of months ago, and the opportunity never presented itself. But when I found out that I was scheduled to preach tonight, I knew that it was a sovereign appointment. Not knowing that of the members meeting that we would have before, it's amazing how God has worked this out in his providence. But we've just experienced as a family the tragic, at least the, the, the beginnings of, and hopefully the end of the tragic realities of this text. Let, let me be clear this evening. This text in Hebrews chapter 3 is not a text about church discipline. This text is a text about how to prevent church discipline. We, we've, what we've experienced tonight, as biblical and as right as it is, is totally unnecessary. What I mean by that is it does not have to happen. It, it can be prevented. So this sermon is a preventative sermon. It is meant to be a preventative sermon, but it's also to be sobering and humbling because like Robert Robinson, we all have the same seeds of unbelief in our hearts. And so with a heart of humility... Let us receive the warning of this passage this evening, and may God help us as we look at Hebrews chapter 3. The outline for my sermon tonight is simple, it's straightforward, and I trust it is derived directly from the text. I want to answer two questions tonight. First, why do people fall away from God? And second, how can we avoid it? Specifically, this text gives us two reasons why people fall away from God, and it also gives us one clear reason or one clear way, excuse me, to avoid such a fall. So first, why do people fall away from God? Of course, at one level, this is a really hard question to answer because all of us have known men or women in the past who have fallen from God, and each of them presumably for different reasons. So while the manifestations, the degrees, the influences leading them to fall are different, there are nevertheless some overlapping characteristics that cause people to fall away from God. And so when I ask the question, why do people fall away from God, I'm actually getting at something deeper. 
than just the surface reason. You know, so-and-so committed adultery or so-and-so left the church and became a Mormon or et cetera, et cetera. What I'm after is something deeper. You see, because if we only talk on the surface level, we'll never expose the root of the problem. And the Bible, as you know, is always going after the heart, the heart, the heart, the heart. And Hebrews chapter 3 is, is, is no different. It's going after the heart. And what this text does is it helps us to dig past the surface or circumstantial level to the heart level, exposing the real reason for a fall in the first place. Hebrews 3 takes us, uh, what it does is it gives us the real heart level reason why people fall away from the living God. And so in that sense, it's very instructive for us. Now, before I move into the text, I want to make applications straight away. Because as I was thinking about this, I thought of, of how we are meant to be dealing with our own sin. So take any sin in your life, any sin in your life, and from Hebrews chapter 3, we can learn some things about how we deal with our own sin. See, because we have to learn how to deal with the heart of our sin and, and the root of our sin and not just the fruit of our sin. In other words, we have to repent of the sin at the root level and not just the surface. See, but we can only do this through the gospel. Let me ask you a question tonight. Have you learned how to deal with your sin according to the gospel or through the gospel? See, if your tendency is to only deal with the surface level of your sin... This level, but not the root level of your sin, that will lead you to the more serious mistake of replacing the gospel with moralism. Here's how this works. Listen to this. Suppose Larry, we'll create a guy named Larry, not Larry Blake, a different Larry. All right. Larry comes to church on Sunday morning. He's anxious. He's been anxious all week. Why is Larry anxious? Why has he been anxious all week? Well, he's anxious because he has to preach. He's inexperienced, but he has to preach. He's anxious. And the Bible says, do not be anxious. Therefore, Larry confesses his sin, and he tells himself, look, I'm going to try not to be anxious next time, but Lord, please forgive me for my sin of anxiety, and he prays for grace. And he thinks that's repentance. But it's not. Instead, Larry needs to get past the surface level or manifestation of his sin, which is anxiety, to the root cause of his sin, which is actually pride. You see, Larry is anxious because he wants to perform well in front of others so that he'll be praised. But he failed to see the sin beneath the sin. Instead, he moved quickly to confess the surface sin of anxiety, and he asked for forgiveness from that sin which is cheap grace. But what Larry needed to see is that the sin beneath the sin was actually an idol of his heart, namely his pride and his self-love and repent of that. See, he needed to deal with his sin through the gospel, which means he needed to first repent and then believe. Repent of the idol of pride and self-love and then in faith ask God for forgiveness from that idolatry. Friends, that's way harder to do. And that's why so many Christians unwittingly replace the gospel with moralism and go for cheap grace. 
See, we have to learn how to deal with our sin through the gospel to get beneath the sin beneath the sin. Now, what I love about Hebrews 3 is that it gets us past the surface level down to the root. It gets us past the fruit to the root all the way to the bottom. And it tells us why people fall away from God. How could it be? What is the root cause? What would cause a person to fall away from the living God? What's the real reason? What's the root reason? What's the heart reason? And verses 12 through 14 provide us with the answer. Here it is. First. Two reasons. First, people fall away from God because they have an evil heart of unbelief. Look at the text, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest perhaps there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief leading you to fall away from the living God. So the cause is clear. Could it be any clearer? The cause is very simply a heart of unbelief. Such a heart is evil, and the text says that it actually it leads us to fall away from the living God. What did Solomon say in Proverbs chapter 4? He said, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Why did he say above all else? Above all else. Well, one of the reasons is, is because the heart then in the Bible is viewed as sort of the, the moral compass, the operating center uh, for one's life, for his being, the place where all the issues of life are addressed. It's the center of operation. It's the command post. So if the heart is seized or taken over, then the whole man is affected, his desires, his motives, his pursuits, his affections, everything is affected, making it is essential for us to guard that heart. Above all things, guard your heart. So that's why Solomon says that. But listen to the language of verse 12. Look, look there at the text. He says, see to it. Strong language. Take heed. We can translate this many ways. Make sure. Pay careful attention to. Jump on. Hold it tight. Fix it in your mind. Make sure you're listening. Listen up, brothers. And notice he says, brothers. This, of course, is picking up the language of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, and Hebrews 3, verse 1, where the writer to the Hebrews calls them holy brothers who are also sharing in a heavenly calling. So this is not the apostle to the Hebrews writing a letter to non-Christians telling them that they, that they need to heed this warning. No, this is him writing to believers and saying, heed this warning. Holy brothers, those of you who share in the heavenly calling. To them, he says, listen up. And listening is something that happens today. All throughout Hebrews, the emphasis is on today. Today, if you hear his voice... Do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear his voice. And folks, this is a particular challenge for us. I think that we all have to admit that, is that it, it is hard to listen to God today because we've been listening to God for many days. And that's a challenge for us. I mean, look, we've heard all this stuff. We've been around for years. Uh, we've heard the best sermons. We've read the best books. We have we've listened to the best uh, preachers preach. We've gone to some of the best conferences. Uh, we, we have, we, we're strong, we're sound, we're mature, and we're reformed. We have all these things. We, we've done all of that listening. I mean, of course, we don't believe that, but we subtly start living that way. Like, we, like we've just 
We, we have it. We're strong. We're mature. We're, we're doing okay. And, and what this text is saying is, no, no. Have you listened, not for many days already, have you listened today? Today, do you hear his voice? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. So he says, take care, brothers. So I say to you, Heritage Baptist Church, take care. Church, take care. Take care of what? What, what are we to take care of? Take care of this. Let us make sure that there is not in any of us an evil and unbelieving heart. Okay, so if that's the case, then what does an evil heart of unbelief look like? All right, so we need to expose that. Unbelief is fundamentally characterized by mistrust and unreliability. It does not believe the promises of God. Rather, it receives and listens to the lie that says, what the world offers me is just as good, if not better, than what God promises. This is how unbelief works. All right? That, that's, that's why unbelief expresses itself first in disobedience. It's a failure to see all sin, no matter what that sin is, as actually being inferior to God. God's way is always better. But, but unbelief causes us to think that, well, you know, I don't, okay, but God, I know God's way is supposed to be better, but this looks really good right now. This looks really enticing. And frankly, what unbelief is, is it's just a choosing the fleeting pleasures of sin over the promises of God. I mean, that's fundamentally what it is. And here's where this hits you, all right? You're sitting there in the pew. This is where this text hits you. Listen to this. All kinds of alternative passions are making war on your heart every day. Not just every week, every day. And it's trying to steal your faith and replace it with broken cisterns that you know will hold no water. It wants to steal your faith. So I say to you, people of God, don't buy it. Do not buy it. Stand up in its face and say, no, God's promises are better. The Christian life is, is a process of learning how to battle unbelief and fight the fight of faith. We sang about that. Thanks, brother, for leading us in helpful uh, music before the sermon. And Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have, what does he say? Kept the faith. So he fought a good fight. And what fight was he fighting? See, the fight he fought was to keep his faith firmly rooted in Christ until the last day. And that's hard. That's really hard. And that's why we have people who fall away into sin because it's such a struggle. It's a terrible thing to fall away from the living God. And here's the tragic irony. Men who fall away from the living God end up falling back into the hands of the living God. And for the unrepentant, those are hands of justice. Do you believe that you can fall? Do you, do, honestly, do you believe? Do you believe that you can fall? Take care, brothers. This is directed to Christians. Take care. Here's the problem. A lot of times when people read warning passages, they turn them into promises. 
But warnings are meant to be read as warnings. Why do we have this propensity to look at a warning passage and say, well, Hebrews chapter 3, look at this text. It says right here in 12 through 14, it says, Take care lest there be any unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called a day, so that none of you may be hardened to deceitfulness. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, and we say, well, we'll hold our confidence firm to the end, because Jesus is for us. And that's emphatically a true statement. But why is the warning there if God didn't want us to heed the warning? So do not turn warning passages into promises. Is Jesus for you? Is he going to preserve you? Yes. Is this a real warning? Yes. Are both realities true at the same time? Yes. So leave the warning a warning. And don't turn it into a promise. There are other promises for you. But this is a warning. Okay? Secondly, people fall away from God then as they are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Verse 13. You see it there in the text. What does the text say? But exhort, urge one another each day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you would become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceitful. Sin is subtle. And thus, it is very difficult to discern. That means the effect of sin is gradual. It's gradual. The effects, you can't see it. It's progressing, but you grow up. How, how many of you recently looked at yourself in the mirror and made notice something discernibly different from yesterday? Maybe it's a cut or a scratch. I'll grant you something like that. But your age is not really reflected in a day. And plus, you see yourself all the time, so you can't really notice it. But what happens when you leave and somebody sees you after five years? <laughs> They're able to assess the damage that's taken place <laughs> in a way that you can't. <laughs> so here's, here's the reality. Here's the reality is that we are – it is hard for us to discern the subtle nature of sin and how it grows gradually. That's what the text says. Take, that's why it says, take care, brothers, because sin has a gradual hardening effect. It tends to go unnoticed. And, and listen, our ability to discern this hardening and the presence and effect of it is not immediately obvious to us. Sin is deceptive. Have you studied the way in which sin seeks to deceive you? See, each person is different, and Satan works on each of us in different ways. Do you know yourself? Do you know how Satan works on you in particular, in specific, to harden you? Friends, over a period of time where sin is indulged, there will be a hardening effect on the soul, and this hardening is progressive. A sheep does not just wake up in the morning in the ditch. Slowly but surely, it wanders from the flock and finds itself in great danger. How did that happen? This week, I uh, read again one of the great Christian classics. I was reading again in, in Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, if you haven't read that, I please read that. Anyway, at one point of the story, Hopeful and Christian are conversing along the path. I think this is in 
part one, and it's in the ninth or tenth uh, section of that. And do you remember when ignorance comes up? And ignorance comes up, and he walks with him for some time, and then he, he departs. He moves away. He turns back from the way of truth. And um, anyway, at one point, Hopeful and Christian are talking about why ignorance turned back. He was walking. He was part of them. Why, why did he turn back? And Bunyan brilliantly identifies a number of factors leading to the hardening of an individual. And I found it really helpful, and I want to help us tonight discern the process of hardening through Bunyan. Listen to Bunyan. Bunyan says this. This, this, is, this is helpful. Bunyan says, first, why did, why, did, why did he turn back? First, when sinners, when, when professors in, in Christ, when they turn back, they begin to forget God and the realities of death. And the judgment to come. That's the step. That's the first step. They begin to forget God. In other words, what Bunyan is describing is a general apathy towards God. It starts there. General apathy. A cavalier attitude that leads you to suppress the idea. Just suppress. Not, not oppose. Just suppress the idea that one day you'll have to stand and actually give an account for your sin. Well, I, just, I don't want to think about that. Just leave it there. Second, Bunyan says... There will be a gradual loss of private holiness, private prayer, and the desire to fight our sin and have sorrow over it. Hmm. See, this, I think, is just sort of an onslaught of laziness in the spiritual disciplines. Isn't that what that is? It's a gradual sort of relinquishing of those duties that we know to be right and that we should be giving ourselves to. Third, Bunyan says, the person who falls away, he begins to avoid or is hardened, begins to avoid the company of lively and warm Christians. (laughs) I love his term lively. It's the adjective that Bunyan uses. These are zealous. These are hungry Christians. Um, It's not that you stop talking to Christians, right? It's just that the lively bunch, you know, the more active, the more praying bunch, the more zealous crew these ones you stop spending time with because you view them as fanatical what's the christian definition of fanatical (laughs) it's really anybody that's more devoted than you are that's how we that's how we measure fanatics fanaticism so the This person here views this guy as fanatical, and he doesn't want to be around him. And he says the reason why he doesn't want to be around him is because he's fanatical. He's fanatical, and that's his excuse. And and, and so he – because what's a fanatic person? A fanatic person – just trying to apply this to a lot. A fanatic person is a person who leaves a track at a restaurant and embarrasses you in front of the waiter. It's the guy who's sitting there at the restaurant with you, and he begins to share the Lord with with the waitress there. And, and the, the conversation is, is really penetrating. And you're sitting there just so embarrassed. Like, why would somebody bring up the Lord? We're in a restaurant. I mean, let her serve. Let her do her thing. This is so awkward. And you're embarrassed. And you think that person is a fanatic. A fanatic is a person who wants to be at church all the time. He wants to pray. He's always talking about prayer. He's always lifting his hands in worship. He's driving around the car. He's listening to Christian music. He's a fanatic. Or maybe you're just really cold. Number four. Four. Bunyan says there will be a disinterest in public worship. Now, that doesn't mean you don't attend worship anymore. 
but it's just that there will be a disinterest in it. And we fulfill the words of Scripture that we begin to worship God with our lips, but our hearts are far from him. Fifth, Bunyan says, they begin to, this is interesting, pick holes, as we say, in the coats of some of the godly. And because of certain frustrations or differences with them, they begin to part with the church. Friends, when you and I begin to manifest fault-finding Finding planks in our brother's eyes, everybody else's eyes, that's indicative that there is something else going on that's not right at another level. See, when the heart begins to harden, there'll be a picking at the faults of others. And this creates a kind of a distant spirit from your brothers and sisters in Christ and the church. And actually what it does is it forges a path to closer friendship with the world. You can see this process is hardening, is progressing here. Six, they begin to adhere to and associate themselves with carnal, loose, and reckless men. He says wanton. I'm translating it reckless. This is Bunyan's way of saying that there's a seeking out of old associations. You find yourself at the door, some of your old friends. You turn down the street that you haven't driven down in years. You make that phone call that you shouldn't make, but you're going to make it anyway. And you manage to convince yourself that the reason why you're going back there is because they need Jesus, which is a lie from the devil that he's using to lure you to that place you have no business being at. Seventh. Bunyan says they give way to carnal sin in secret, in secret, and are glad if they can see such things in other Christians so that they can be more bold to continue it themselves. Man, I mean, this is so exposing. He's, Bunyan's really nailing it here. This man, this is a man who finds himself, uh, he, he's, he's now seared to some degree his conscience and he's now listening to that sacrilegious humor that he would have no part of he is now enjoying or she is now enjoying those tasteless magazines and watching listen a steady diet a steady diet of trashy tv lousy movies a loose tongue and now there's very little toleration anymore for what the godly have to say in fact The very idea of being around lively Christians now is repulsive. Wow. And then finally, Bunyan says, after all of this, they begin to play with sin openly. Now what happens? Openly. What once was secret, but through the addiction and the grip that sin had on you, you begin to play with sin openly. And so as your heart grows increasingly hardened, you become increasingly brazen. Suddenly you don't care anymore what people think. I mean, you've become like those in Jeremiah eight, twelve. Are they ashamed which says, Are they ashamed because they have done such disgusting things? No, no, they are not at all ashamed. They do not even know how to blush. And you'll walk past your Christian friends on the street, and you'll look them right in the eyes with no shame. 
You'll introduce your adulterous relationships in the mall. But what will happen to you according to Jeremiah? Therefore, they will fall among the fallen and be brought to ruin when I punish them, says the Lord. Once we were among the professing faithful, but now we've departed from the truth of God's word. And the pitiful and this pitiful, sorry condition of your life will be known to everyone that you once knew. I mean, they will look at you and say, look at what this guy's life has become. How about the parable of the prodigal son, the lost son? Isn't, isn't this a great, the guy falls into sin, all right, and then he's, he's, he completely ends up eating food out of a trough. I mean, sin absolutely wrecks havoc on you. You will find yourself not only in places you never thought you would be, but you will, you will find yourself in a position where it's hard to even survive. You start spending your money, spending money you don't have, then all of a sudden you're out there on the street and you're homeless. I mean, the sin... Sin, what you, a professing believer, a person who is active part of the church, and he finds himself homeless. Sin will absolutely wreck us. Oh, here's the application for us. Listen to this. How sad, how sad is this? Friends, if the rehearsing of that list does not cause you to examine your own heart, then you may be in more danger tonight than you thought. What should be our self-assessment? What should be our reaction to this? Let me suggest that we own the conviction of Robert Murray McShane. What did he say? He said this, I have found the seeds of every, of every sin dwelling in my heart. Every sin. And therefore, the warning in verse 12 is a necessary warning for us tonight. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief leading you to fall from the living God. Well, the deceitfulness of sin is powerful, as we've seen, and pastors have to work so hard sometimes to keep their sheep out of the, the ditch, out of the ravine. Um, pastors themselves have to fight for their lives to keep from falling from God. I mean, isn't it amazing how prone we are to wonder? So the next time that you look at your beautiful church family and you're thankful for it, and you think of the, the great Bible studies that you're a part of, the ladies' Bible studies or whatever you're, you're doing, helpful care groups and faithful preaching, remind yourself that some of those sitting around you or near you are in ICU, spiritually speaking. Do you realize that? There are some who are not doing well. What are you doing about it? Do you care? Do we care? They're being led right now into the deceitfulness of sin. Do you see it taking place? Warn them, love them, admonish them, exhort them. John Stott, in a somewhat humorous way, paints the realistic picture of, of sheep, how sheep really are. Listen to what he says. He says, sheep are not the clean and cuddly creatures they appear to be. In fact, they are dirty, subject to unpleasant pests. And regularly need to be dipped in strong chemicals to rid them of lice, ticks, and worms. <laughs> they are also unintelligent, wayward, and obstinate. 
Stott says, I, I hesitate to apply these metaphors too closely and characterize the people of God as dirty, lousy, or stupid. But some people are a great trial to their pastors. And their pastors will persevere in caring for them only if they remember how valuable they are in God's sight. They are the flock of God, the Father, purchased by the blood of God the Son, and supervised by the overseer appointed by God the Holy Spirit. Amen. That's well said from Stott. O people of God, stick close to the Savior. Stick close to the shepherd. Why should you veer off from the shepherd? You You are a sheep. Stay close to the shepherd. He will protect you. He will take care of you. He will, he, will, he will guide you. Stay close to the shepherd. Stick close to your shepherds here on earth that have been appointed as your shepherds and overseers. Stick close to Pastor Rich. Stick close to Pastor Mark. Stick close to Pastor Ted. Stick close to Pastor Sam and Pastor Keith and myself. Stick close to your shepherds. Let them know what's going on in your life. They're here to guide you and help you. That's what we are here for. And stick close to your brothers and sisters. Stick close to the fellowship of the body. Sin will entice you, but the closer you are to God and his people, I'm telling you, the safer you will be. You need to be here at church. You need to be with the body of Christ. So that's the main reason. You know that? that this is the main reason why we preach the gospel every week from this pulpit. It's, it's so that you'll remain, you'll, you, so that you'll maintain your hope in Christ to the last day of your life. We, we, we want to we support you. We want to strengthen you. We want to fight with you, and we want to fight for you. And that's why we preach here. Don't, don't despise the care and correction of your pastors. God, see, God is using them to keep you from wandering away. So there it is. Two ways people fall away from God. One, they fall away because they have an evil heart of unbelief. And two, they fall away as they are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And this leads us to our final question. How can we avoid it? How do we avoid falling away from God? Folks, it, it really comes down to this. It comes down to this. People fall away because they do not obey Hebrews 3.13. They do not obey Hebrews 3.13. Look at verse 13. But exhort, urge one another each day as long as it is called two days so that none of you would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What protects us from wondering? What protects us from having an unbelieving heart? What protects us from being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? See, the argument of this text is that the God-appointed means to keep us from being hardened through the deceitfulness of sin is our corporate obedience to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13. That's the God-appointed means. It's not our suggestion. It's not our idea of how you should be a more faithful church member. No, this is God's project and perseverance is a corporate project perseverance is a community project you cannot do this on your own you cannot make it on your own you cannot expect to survive without a brother or sister speaking the gospel regularly and every day into your life 
You, you cannot. You will not survive. Forget it. There's no way to do it. And if you do somehow, by the mercy of God, make it on your own without the help of the church, it will be because of the sheer mercy of God despite your foolishness. We have to be committed to guarding one another's hearts. See, what we have to do is take Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart above all things where it's the wellspring of life, and do that for each other. The command is so clear. It's a command. This is an imperative in God's word. Exhort one another each day. This is a command. Listen, this is an issue for us of obedience. If we, if we are not willing to follow this text, if we are not willing to exhort one another, to encourage one another, then we are in disobedience to God. And, and listen, what's more is we are to do this each day. Each day. Let me ask you a question. Are you being encouraged every day by your brothers and sisters? Let me ask it another way. Do you encourage your brothers and sisters every day? See, one of the evidences that you're not falling into the deceitfulness of sin and that you're not becoming hardened by it and that you're not falling away from the living God is your commitment to take this passage seriously and seek to live it out. And we need to hear this because do you know that we could, you could right now have an evil, unbelieving heart and not know it? Do you know that's possible? So take care. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Do you feel your proneness to wonder? Do you have a clear, conscious, sane assessment of yourself and your proclivity to wonder? Have you then asked others for help to keep you from wondering? Have you opened up your life to others? Will you allow other Christians to speak into your life? Because if this is the means of your preservation, then you should be very keen to observe it. If you're, listen, if you're going to make it to heaven, it's going to come through pain, struggle, suffering, and a willingness to have your brother stare your ugly sin right in the face and strike it down with truth. To say, bro, that is, that is sin. You know that that is not according to the promises of God and he strikes it down. See, nobody sins because they wanted to be deceived. We sin because we believe that what sin offers us is true. We believe that being sexually aroused, for example, will bring us personal satisfaction. Or being socially in the know will bring us into meaningful acceptance with others. So we look at pornography and we gossip about others. But if we really believed that pornography and gossip were based on lies that don't satisfy, we would not have participated in them. But since sin is deceptive, and since you are prone to believe a lie, you need someone to come alongside you and speak some truth into your life. This is what care groups are all about. You may not realize this. You may have thought care groups were, were this warm, fuzzy time where we get together and we learn about the Bible. It's not. You know what care groups are for? Care groups are designed to keep you out of hell. That's what care groups are for. And I say that strongly because that is what they are intended for. That, that's the height. That's the ultimate reason is to keep you walking with Christ. They exist to keep you from hell. It's not fundamentally about learning new things. 
It's not fundamentally about getting in each other's lives and just fellowshipping. It's about fellowshipping in a Hebrews 3.13 kind of way where we exhort one another every day while it is called today so that we would not be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. We fight for each other. That's care groups. There's a guy who was supposed to be a part of my care group at the beginning of this year. I called him, and I asked him to come. And I emailed him every week. One day at church, I approached him, and I said, Brother, we need you. You need us. Come to care group. It will help you. But you know what? I was the only guy that never participated in my care group this year. And tonight, he finds himself having made a mess of his life and under church discipline. And I say to you tonight, take care, brothers. Take care. I want to close with a beautiful prayer written by the Frenchman, Michel Coist. In his book, Prayers of Life, this is what he prays. I have fallen, Lord, once more. I can't go on. I never succeed. I'm ashamed. Lord, I don't dare look at you, and yet I've struggled, Lord, for I knew that you were right near me, bending over me, watching, but temptation blew in like a hurricane, and instead of looking at you, I turned my head away. I stepped aside while you stood silent and sorrowful, like a spurned fiancé who sees his loved one carried off by his rival. Lord, when the wind died down and suddenly, as suddenly as it had arisen, when the lightning ceased after proudly streaking the darkness, all of a sudden I found myself alone, ashamed and disgusted with the sin in my hands. This sin that I selected as a customer his purchase, this sin that I have paid for and cannot return now, for the storekeeper is no longer there, this tasteless sin, this odious sin, this sin that sickens me, which I once wanted but want no more, that I have imagined, sought, played with, fondled for a long time, that I finally embraced while coldly, By passing you, my arms outstretched, my eyes and heart irresistibly drawn, this sin that I have grasped and consumed with gluttony, it's mine now, but it possesses me as the spider web holds captive the fly. It's mine. It sticks to me. It flows in my veins. It fills my heart. It has slipped in everywhere as darkness slips into the forest at dusk and fills all the patches of light. Lord, I can't seem to get rid of it. I run from it like the the master of an unwanted and mangy dog, but it catches up with me and rubs joyfully against my legs. Everyone must notice it. I'm so ashamed that I feel like crawling to avoid being seen. I'm ashamed of being seen by my friends. Lord, I'm ashamed of being seen by you, for you love me, and I forgot you. I forgot you because I was thinking only of myself, and one can't think of several persons at once. One must choose, and I chose And now, Lord, your voice, your look, and your love hurt me. They weigh me down more than my sin. 
Lord, please don't look at me like that. I'm naked. I'm dirty. I'm down and shattered with no strength left. And I dare not make any more promises. I can only stand bowed before you, Lord. To which God responds, come on, son. Look up. Isn't it mainly your vanity that's wounded? If you loved me, you would grieve, but you would trust. Do you think there's a limit to God's love? Do you think that for a moment I've stopped loving you? But you still rely on yourself, son. You must rely on me. Ask my pardon and get up quickly. You see, it's not falling that's the worst. It's staying on the ground. Friends, in an audience like this, is there somebody that's fallen? Are you going to stay on the ground? Get up. Get up quickly and say, all right, Lord, you've spoken to me. I'm going to respond to your word. Jesus is here to rescue you. Receive him. Run back to him. He loves you. God is faithful. When you are faithless, God is faithful. Robert Robinson, he wandered away. But the good news is that Robinson's life did not end in the far country. God in his mercy turned his heart once again, tuned his heart, excuse me, once again to sing his grace. In that encounter with the lady in the stagecoach, God used the very gospel words that he once penned, spoken from the, from the mouth of an unknown woman, to draw him to repentance. His fellowship was restored with God, the God in whom there is streams of mercy never ceasing. Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face, clothed then in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Let's pray. God, you know that save your grace and your mercy and kindness. Lord, we would all be sitting here as an absolute wreck. But Lord, you've been good. You've been good to us. If we're here tonight, Lord, we haven't fallen from you, then praise your name. It's just mercy. It's really just grace. Lord, we are prone to wonder. We are prone to leave the God that we love. But, Lord, drive a stake in the ground and make us stand. So, Lord, we will not be moved and fall away from the living God. Father, please, for the sake of our friends, rescue them both. Give them both a Robert Robinson story. And let them come all the way back in. And then stand up and praise your awesome name for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.